0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We are now developing legislation to deal with online harms to address hate speech, child sexual exploitation content, terrorism content, content that incites violence, and non consensual sharing of intimate images online. During the pandemic, digital platforms are more than ever at the heart of how we communicate with one another and stay connected. As Canadians spend more time online, they also can find themselves exposed to harmful content that can perpetuate crime and trickle into our lives. Both the right to freedom of speech and the right to security of the person are two important pillars within our charter of rights and freedoms. Neither is optional for our government. Late last month, just weeks prior to the national election call, Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault released plans for online harms legislation with a process that was billed as a consultation, but that is probably better characterized as an advisory notice, since there are a few questions, options, or even apparent interest in hearing what Canadians think of the plans. Those plans include the creation of a bureaucratic superstructure Featuring a new digital safety commission, a digital tribunal to rule on content removal, and a social media regulation advisory board. In terms of illegal content, the proposed legislation envisions a myriad of takedown requirements, content filtering, complaints mechanisms, and even website blocking. Cynthia Koo is an associate at the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law in Washington. She's also the author of a groundbreaking Canadian study for LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, on holding digital platforms accountable for technology-facilitated gender-based violence. She joins me on the podcast in a personal capacity to discuss the government's consultation and her recent report. Cynthia, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I want to come to some really important work that you've done in the online harm space. Your your LEAF report was really exceptional. But before that, we're going to spend some time talking about the government's recent consultation on online harms and some of their plans in that regard. Uh, As you know, as many listeners may know, uh, earlier this summer, just a few weeks before the election call they launched a public consultation on online harms. And while I think there are some justifiable concerns that this really doesn't feel like much of a consultation if we're honest about it, it kind of reads like a, an advisory notice, They don't ask a whole lot of questions. It's pretty clear that I think, one, the government wants this to be an election issue, even though as we record this, that really hasn't happened yet. Uh, And also plan to act on these recommendations if they are re-elected. And so I'd love to get into some of the specifics so that people are aware of what some of those plans are. But why don't we start first with some of your general impressions? You know, what struck you about the consultation and the government's planned approach?
1: Sure. So I share a lot of the concerns that you've expressed here and online and in other places as well. In terms of our approach to the consultation, I think, to be honest, I don't blame them that much for the way that they've approached it in terms of giving us a full, proposal and then having us comment on it, I kind of think that if they had just given us questions then we could just as easily critique them for asking us to do their homework for them. And I think it's actually easier to critique a proposal that they've laid out on the table than it is to have them give us a blank page. Um, Where I would blame them, though, is for the fact that they actually have been consulting us already, not a public consultation, but they have been informally talking to groups, to historically marginalized groups and the representatives, victims and survivors of online abuse and the issues that they're purporting to address with this bill over the past one and a half years. And this proposal that they've given us seems to reflect almost none of those conversations. We, there have been so many experts in this space who have worked and devoted careers and years of research and scholarship and advocacy to the issues that they're purporting to address in this bill and they just seem not to have listened to to any of us as reflected in what they've proposed so i think that's the first issue in terms of the overall impression um and then in terms of the timing with the election and and other groups have already Bit brought up this point, um, especially some of the anti-hate groups that have been following this bill, is that there seems to be a certain cynicism around the timing of this bill, where for those who support it, it's almost as if the federal government is dangling it as, as a reason to re-elect them, rather than making sure that this is something that genuinely meets the needs of historically marginalized groups. And again, the vulnerable users that they're saying this law is supposed to help.
0: Yeah, OK, that's well, it's pretty damning to, to suggest that they had spoken to, to many groups in the lead up to this and, and weren't listening. It, it calls into question if, if they're going to listen to much of anything as part of this consultation. But, you know, yeah. why don't we get into you know why don't we get into some, some of those uh, specifics? And I should note even before we do that, that, you know, there's both Bill C-36 that some people have been talking about this is the online harm, this is online hate provisions. Uh, and that was that and some of the kinds of comments you just made were echoed, I recall, when that legislation was introduced quite literally in the last hour of the House of Commons saying this felt like more like a political prop than it did a real attempt to address the issue. And now we have this further consultation that that politicizes the issue, to be sure. But uh, if they're not listening or haven't been listening, that that's a source of concern. So why don't we start first with what it is that they are trying to target. The the package specifically targets certain forms of so-called illegal speech. Can you describe what those are, and is there any reason for concern about the scope of, of, of this proposal?
1: Sure. So the proposed law specifically targets five types of speech that they say are already criminalized, and so the idea, what they're saying is supposed to reassure us, is that they're not expanding the scope of this regulation beyond speech that is not already illegal or criminalized in some in Canadian law, which can be questioned, but to the extent of what they're telling us, those five categories are hate speech, incitement to violence, non-consensual distribution of intimate images, um, child sexual abuse material, and terrorist content. So, in terms of reasons for concern about scope, I would say that there are several reasons for concern to be concerned about scope. The first one. Is that of definitions. And this is something that doesn't apply to just these five categories of harm, but I would say it's something that I noticed throughout the proposal, generally speaking, both the discussion guide and the technical paper. I, I kept wanting to ask how are you defining this term? How are you defining online? communication service provider? How are you defining terrorist content? And to the extent that they do provide definitions, it really just does not seem precise enough for us to have confidence that these are workable legal definitions or legal standards, particularly when it comes to potential constitutional challenges. And so that's the first thing, is is just wanting to see more precise definitions, for for instance, what counts as terrorist content um, and why these, and then the second scope, concern is why these five and and why are they together I think there's actually the scope is either overly broad or you can actually even look at it as there's there's multiple scopes that they're trying to address with this one law and I think if there's one major change I want, well, I mean, there's several changes that I want to see to this law. But if there's one major one that would go to the heart of some of the concerns that I have from an equality perspective, it's that it should at least be two separate bills, two separate legal regimes, if not more, one per type of content that they're trying to address. Because when you look at hate speech versus non-consensual distribution of intimate images versus terrorist content, these are all three such different issues with different root causes, different ways in which they're carried out online and different constitutional concerns and therefore different requirements for how to address them both effectively and in a way that passes constitutional muster. So it is unhelpful at best and actively harmful at worst to push them all together into one law because then under this this incredibly vague term of online harms. Because now, when people are trying to discuss this law, someone may have in mind terrorist content, and they'll be talking and advocating and legislation, le- legislating on the basis of having terrorist content in mind and 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 tailoring everything to that, that. Whereas someone else is opposing or supporting it on the basis of, in their mind, non-consensual distribution of intimate images. How do you put those two in the same regime? And so I think that is just so harmful. It's it's almost as if because the there is a discrete regime that you could set out just for non-consensual distribution of intimate images, and it exists. Um, professors Emily Lenlaw and Hilary Young have in created an entire legislative model to address NCDII specifically that's nuanced and balanced and effective to the point that it's been adopted as a uniform model. So why doesn't the government implement that, that to address this one concern? But instead, by placing it into this proposal, it's almost as if they're, they're holding NCDII and the victims of NCDII hostage so that they can pass other provisions to address maybe what the state might be more interested in, in terms of terrorist content. Um, and so when it comes to the scope of the bill, I think that's one of the first major issues, which is just that they're trying to do too much with this law in a way that doesn't actually help any of the issues that the law is supposed to be targeted at, because it's just not targeted at all.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting observation to, to highlight the the notable differences that exist between different forms of speech. Quite clearly, the government has, has, is attempting to say, well, it's, it's this same bucket, that we can put it all into and and hope that it passes constitutional muster but doesn't get into some of the specifics around these different kinds of speech and how they ought to be addressed. It does seem to me, though, of course, that the government would argue, I suspect, that they would say that the commonality here isn't the speech, but it's the Internet platforms themselves. Um, And so they would argue that that's where the harm is taking place. And that's really why they've sort of brought all of these together. What are some of the responsibilities that the government has in mind for some of these platforms? What kind of liability do they face for failure to act under this plan?
1: So there are a few types of responsibilities that this law would impose on internet platforms, as well as associated liabilities if they don't meet those responsibilities. Um, In terms of the government's potential argument though, that it's because they all happen on internet platforms and therefore can be subsumed together, that seems kind of, I, I would think if they genuinely did argue that it would be a little bit of a disingenuous argument just because essentially everything happens on internet platforms these days at that point they might as well throw in copyright as well, and I know that there's that's a whole other discussion. Um, and it's one of our fears that eventually they would want to throw in copyright down the line, if this ever gets the structure ever gets enacted. Um, in terms of what they are asking internet platforms to do, though, there is a few key responsibilities that seem to have been the greatest cause for concern rightfully I would say um, the first one. Is proactive monitoring for these five kinds of categories of content. Um, that appears to be tied in some cases to potential mandatory reporting to the RCMP and to CSIS. So tying in law enforcement and the national security apparatus, which I think is incredibly problematic from almost any perspective you look at, whether that's that of. of right to privacy, concerns about state surveillance and the open internet, or from the perspective of historically marginalized groups who are just as much targets of racism and discrimination by the state and state actors as they are sub targets of private actors and, and other users who use online platforms. If online platforms fail in these obligations, then they are subjected to fines of 3%, 3%, up to 3% of revenues, or 5% in other cases. And I should say that I don't think the fact that there are really high fines in and of itself is a bad thing. I actually support that. I think if if you are going to regulate online platforms, then you should do it in a way that has teeth. And fines at a under a certain threshold will just not have teeth because These platforms make so much money that it would just be factored in as a cost of doing business. And I don't think would have any deterrent effect whatsoever. So it's not the high fines in and of themselves. It's what they're using the fines for, how they're structured, um, it's how the obligations around them are structured and and what is being incentivized and disincentivized. And so this is something that I know other people like yourself um, and other scholars have Talked about a lot which is that the way this proposal is set up it does seem to incentivize takedowns taking down content over keeping content up which then of course results in more in the law being weighed towards wrongful takedowns and why that's a problem again from an equality and equity perspective is that historically marginalized groups are already routinely censored and silenced online by other users who are engaged in technology facilitated gender-based violence, um, white supremacist and racist violence, and who are trying to drive women activists, feminists, racial justice activists off the internet already. So they're already being silenced and driven offline by private actors and other users. And what this law risks doing by incentivizing takedowns is further silencing through mistaken takedowns or overzealous or misunderstood takedowns um, on the the platforms through uh, algorithmic bias. Because if you read the law a certain way, it essentially requires online platforms to engage in automated content moderation, um, unless we're able to argue that automated content moderation does not constitute a reasonable effort because of its bias, which might be an interesting strategy to follow. Um, And so we know that automated content moderation, for example, there are papers showing that AI moderation has racial bias when it comes to detecting hate speech, for example. Um, And so you have historically marginalized users already driven offline by other users, i.e. private abuse. And then you have the platforms now incentivized to also mistakenly go after their speech, especially if you just look at what happened with FOSS FESTA in the case of sex workers, for example. Um, and then there's a third branch, a third wall closing in on the speech of historically marginalized users, which is, we haven't really talked about this yet, but the connection to law enforcement and, and that ceases because, again, these are the same groups who are also often targeted by state actors and by law enforcement and who are already not helped by law enforcement's pre-existing powers when it comes to addressing things like misogyny, sexual assault, um, and racist violence. And so... When you look at the law all together, it, it it's defy. It's very difficult to believe that this is a law that was proposed by a government that genuinely cares about the plight of historically marginalized and vulnerable users in online spaces.
0: Wow, that's a, that's a that's a strong wrap on. On on, the, on your take around these issues, I, I just want to emphasize for a moment that that what you're essentially saying essentially what you are saying is that the very groups that this is designed to assist may ultimately be harmed potentially the most by this that that if, if this is about trying to empower them to, to be able to speak because there is a concern that online harms may have a chilling effect on those very groups. It sounds to me like you're suggesting this could really backfire in a serious way, that those very groups may be the ones that are are amongst the most harmed by this. They will be the ones that will face their speech being taken down, whether that's through uh, complaints where from some of the groups they themselves may be targeting, let's say an anti-hate context or otherwise, that there's this kind of boomerang effect where their speech is targeted. And if the incentives are to remove, their content will be removed or through the potential bias if, if we move to more towards automated systems, all of which being enforced by a system where they have a pre-existing concerns as well.
1: Right, exactly. And among there is also their abusers or abusive, socially dominant groups online exploiting content moderation features and laws to silence groups because and accusing them of engaging in hate speech when really they're engaging in valid critiques. Um, and there's also platform, moderate, platform content platforms' own content moderation policies, which many other experts have written specifically on the quote-unquote internet war on sex and the almost puritanical politics of digital platforms, partly driven by commercial advertisers and the, the sanitization of the Internet. So that's an issue as well, which then, of course, impacts not only sex workers, but also queer youth, uh, transgender individuals, people who are trying to discover alternative lifestyles and, and and their sexualities online in spaces that we they used to be able to do, but may have less and less space to do so now, especially as these laws are closing in. Um, Having said all of that, I do want to make sure to be really careful to note that the law does identify real issues, and people have mentioned that, which I'm, I'm really glad to see. And so, because I think one of the dangers when it comes to pushing back against these types of laws is that it's really easy to fall back on a kind of live and and not sufficiently nuanced conception of of free speech and talking about how oh Trudeau's trying to censor the internet, everything's becoming Orwellian, Um, and I just don't think that kind of rhetoric is particularly helpful, particularly on a long-term basis, because then it becomes really easy to align ourselves with other groups who we may not actually Align with politically long term, such as groups that, that are fine with hate speech, or that do believe in white supremacy, or don't see an issue with um, lack of with inequality equality in society, and, and don't care about issues to address that in the long term because they happen to also spot the free speech issues with this particular bill. So I think when it comes to talking about these laws and pushing back on them, it's really important to leave that space open for, um, for example, I don't think regulating speech in and of itself is a bad thing. I think that the specific ways in which we've seen Heritage try to do it have been terrible and awful and not at all what we want to see but that doesn't mean that a right way to do it doesn't exist and so i would want to make sure that we leave both rhetorical and and political space to move forward on those right ways um, in the in the i say optimistically event that we have a government that is willing to listen and to to enact those those um, right ways that do balance these intersectional concerns and do respect freedom of expression along with equality and privacy, um, which is actually why this proposal has been particularly frustrating for I think people like myself um, and Susie Dunn and Emily Ledlaw, because we've all been working in this space of how do you address uh, technology facilitated gender-based violence and other similar harms in a way that takes into account intermediary liability concerns and the whole history of intermediary liability law um, and that whole area of law and scholarship and, policy before it became known as platform regulation, while also addressing the real harms that online platforms do facilitate. So we've done that work. So in the leaf report, for example, we set out several recommendations for the regime that we would like to see. So it was it's not just critiquing, it's we actually put forward an affirmative vision of what they could do. And similarly, Ledlaw and Young have put forward an actual positive legal regime that the government could implement today if they wanted to, if they were in session. Um, And so it's particularly frustrating that it seems that they've just swept all that off the table, even though I know that they know these proposals exist, um, and instead have come up with this other thing that is not helpful, potentially harmful, activates the rest of the country to oppose speech regulation, internet regulation, generally speaking, without those nuances for equality. And then at the end of the day, There's nobody in the corner of those who are actually trying to achieve law that advances the quality and equity of historically marginalized groups online, including their rights to freedom of expression. And we're just stuck continually putting out these fires instead of achieving anything truly beneficial and progressive.
0: I certainly can hear the frustration in your voice. I, I, I want to come back to some of those recommendations that that you just highlighted, but but before I do that, I guess like a couple of things that I did want to touch on. One, you have a you have a theory as to why the government's uh, adopted the approach that you're, you know, the, the approach that they have taken and and sidelined the kind of work that you've just been describing. You have a sense of what the motivation might be.
1: I think that might be beyond me to speculate on the motivation of, of why of why they did it this way. I the Well, that line about malice versus incompetence comes to mind. Um, but it, it's really hard to say, especially because they have talked to all of these groups over the past one and a half years, and of course, got all the feedback around C-10 and with people anticipating this particular law. Um, I know that there are others, well, this is not, I won't say that this is a motivation, but I will say that this is an impact that they should be aware of, which is, it actually goes to them naming the Digital Safety Commission, I believe it is. Um, and I think it's not, it's kind of unfortunate that they went with the term digital safety because, um, and this my colleagues at the Citizen Lab have written on this, is that there's a whole history of the government and national security agencies and law enforcement using the rhetoric of safety, particularly women's safety and children's safety as a guise through which to pass information controls um, such as more stringent national security laws and state surveillance laws that that engage the right to privacy when it comes to our online activities. And so I don't know if, like, I won't say that that's, that's their intent here, but this is one of the potential impacts where, especially with the incorporation of law enforcement and CSIS, which seemed kind of counterintuitive because they start off in their documents saying that this is going to be a regulatory regime. And therefore, even though these five categories of content, we're going to define them according to the criminal definitions, we're going to adjust those definitions for regulatory context, which generally means a lower standard. Because it's supposed to be, the law in that case is supposed to be remedial, and you're supposed to help the victims, as opposed to punitive, where you're going after the perpetrators. And so it was very strange to see them say, this is supposed to be a regulatory regime, and then immediately go into, and therefore we are tying it to law enforcement and to CSIS, and including mandatory connections between the platforms. Um, And law enforcement and ceases, and I think this actually goes back to the scope question, which is, if you want to get after terrorist content, then fine let's talk about that, but then let's talk about terrorist content on its own terms, with its own law, because that will be a much more honest conversation than making us talk about how to address terrorist content online when at the back of our heads because of how they structured this. Okay, but will this then harm the fight to help victims of non-consensual distribution of intimate imagery, for example?
0: Right. So by by linking all these together, you end up from a bureau, bureaucratic perspective as well with some really poor fits where you've got CSIS wrapped in uh, to issues that clearly have nothing to do with CSIS, no, much less the... The Digital Safety Commissioner, there's of course the Recourse Council that that is effectively a, a content moderation tribunal, a large amount of bureaucracy that's built in. Plus, of course, even on top of that, the Privacy Tribunal, more powers for the CRTC. Uh, especially through Bill C-10, uh, the, it, it does feel like the government is is layering in just a, a huge amount of bureaucracy a, a, as a mechanism to deal with this and not getting into the kind of granular sorts of solutions that you've, you've been thinking about.
1: Right, it does. And so again, I should say that I don't think that creating new agencies and, and enacting more bureaucracy is necessarily a negative effect in and of itself. It's just that the contents of what they want to fill these agencies with is it doesn't seem to be effective, and so the net impact is negative. So I should say that in the leaf report, we actually also do recommend agencies that are similar in some ways to the ones here, but obviously different in other ways. So instead of, for example, here the government is recommending two separate agencies, a commission um, and the the recourse council, and it. That is a little bit similar to what we recommended in the LEAF report, or what I recommend in the LEAF report, which is one agency that has two wings. One wing would track to what it seems like they're envisioning their commission as, which is focused more on public education and training um, and, and research, so commissioning expert research. And then the other wing would track to what they seem to be envisioning the council would be, which is focusing on providing remedies to victims and and adjudicating complaints um, and enforcing the law. If I were to suggest changes to what they propose here to match what we recommended in the LEAF report, it would be combining the two organizations so that there's less siloing and because it seems like there's staff that you could probably, that could probably serve both, you wouldn't need you could probably reduce duplication of work. Um, and then also do away with the advisory board because we don't think that the type of expertise they're expecting the advisory board to provide should be quarantined. That type of expertise should be internalized within the agencies already, among their staff, and among the commissioners themselves. So we recommended a leap report that, that um, how they say all the members of the Commissioner, for example, and the people in the advisory board should be representative of the Canadian population, but I don't think that should be the case. I think that they should be representative of the specific groups who are disproportionately impacted by online abuse and by violent content and harassment online, because that is only how you'll actually get the expertise you need, which is informed by lived experience and by people who have actually suffered from these types of issues. Um, and not only that, but we also recommend in the leaf report that people who staff these agencies should have actual human rights expertise, actual civil rights expertise and, and be equality scholars and know how racism online works and also be tech law experts and who have done research into, into platform dynamics and why online, why violence that occurs online is both different but also similar to violence that occurs offline and the intersections between them. Um, So if you staff agencies with the right people and the right mandate, then then that is something that that would be more than justifiable and that could be advisable or desirable, which is how we try to, what we try to propose in the the leave report. But unfortunately, it's just not what we see here, Um, especially when it comes to who they appoint. Why does the advisory board, for example, especially if it's only advisory, have only seven members? Because for context, the Facebook Oversight Board, which is supposed to be an actual, um, sorry, not a legal adjudicative body, but it's supposed to play an adjudicative role in the internal structure of Facebook. That, so they're not just advisory, they have 40 members. And when it comes to, even though they say that it's supposed to reflect diversity and inclusivity and impacted groups and vulnerable groups, I'm just thinking of think of all the agencies and legal bodies that we already have in Canada, everything from the Supreme Court of Canada to all the lower levels of courts, to the CRTC, to the Competition Bureau, to Cabinet, all of these institutions are supposed to also be diverse and reflect all the different populations in Canada and be inclusive and representative of historically marginalized groups, but they don't. And so why we we think that these proposed agencies would be any different.
0: What else can you can you tell us about the LEAF report? You've already highlighted uh, sort of some of the organizational bureaucratic structure type recommendations. What were some of the more substantive recommendations that you came out with? And, and if you could provide it as well, I guess a bit more background on the report itself.
1: Sure. So maybe I'll start off with some background and context of the report itself and then go into one or two of the recommendations that I haven't already touched on. Um, so the LEAF report, so LEAF is a, National organization that engages in strategic litigation and other forms of advocacy for women's equality and gender equality across Canada. They recently formed a technology facilitated violence committee in order to do further work focused on gender violence in the and gender inequality in the technology space. And as part of one of the first things this committee did was they commissioned a report um, and that research grant went to me specifically on how, whether, and to what extent to hold digital platforms liable for technology facilitated gender-based violence, abuse and harassment in Canadian law. So the point of this report was While it was rooted in Canadian law, there was also a comparative aspect to it, because as part of that research, I also had to look at platform liability regimes in several other jurisdictions, including the United States, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and Germany, and then try and extract what were the lessons from all of those. So I guess that's the benefit of us coming behind these other jurisdictions, is we can see what happened there, and can we implement those lessons here. Um, Unfortunately, our government does not seem to have done that. But that is something that we should be aiming to do. So in this report, after I went through what are all the current platform liability regimes that could apply to platforms in Canada, whether it's because it already applies to something like copyright. And even if I don't agree with how they apply it to copyright, I could see an argument for it being applied to texas related Gender Violence just because the proportionality analysis is so different Um, to other, recommendation and then ending to how does online violence how does gender-based violence abuse and harassment actually work on digital platforms and why it's different like why do we actually want to or why does it make sense to hold digital platforms liable and i talk about the specific role that they play not just in reflecting pre-existing violence and harassment but because of their business models and and the platform affordances and the features Combined with techno sociological aspects of users engaging online, they actively exacerbate, amplify, and contribute to the proliferation of gender based and racist violence, abuse, and harassment, which is why there is a legal argument there to hold them responsible, not directly responsible, the same way the actual speaker would be, but some level of responsibility, maybe more of a regulatory obligation. Um, as opposed to direct liability and then we closed the report with 14 recommendations for legislative reform so they are aimed at the federal government we don't really speak to the platform companies themselves which again is why it was so frustrating to see this proposal because our whole report and all of the recommendations were aimed at the federal government and and what they could do they basically presented it to them on the platter um only to see almost almost none of it taken up they did take up some of the things such as transparency obligations but not the really really key things such as not tying in law enforcement, and splitting out the scope and targeting each harm separately. Um, So that's the context for the relief report and how it came about. In terms of specific recommendations, um, I touched on a few of them already, such as the the agencies that we actually one really important difference I should mention is that the agency relief report recommends is specifically focused on tech facilitated violence only at most extending it to to other forms of social injustice and violence abuse and harassment. On the basis of protected characteristics in that historically marginalized, so, for instance, we wouldn't want just women to be able to benefit from this agency, it would be anyone who's targeted by systemic oppression and. By narrowing it to that focus, we want really want to make sure that this was an equality and equity specialist agency so that it could not be exploited for things like um, overly broad anti-terrorism efforts that just result in disproportionate state surveillance, for example. Um, and that was something really key. Another thing that I would bring up in terms of an overarching approach to the report recommendations and what I would have really, really hoped to see with anything the government progresses with as well, is is just infusing a unifying thread of intersectionality throughout the law, and a focus on substantive equality. So this refers to potential ways that the law can backfire, is that they talk about all these ways that you can take things down and you can submit complaints, which, which is actually all well and good, there should be accessible complaint and appeal mechanisms. But there doesn't seem to be any explicit recognition of that the regulator and that platforms should apply substantive equality approach to how they implement their obligations, because what you have now is the danger of a formal equality approach, where anyone who is subjected to any of the applicable categories of content on the basis of a protected characteristic is then then has access to these remedies. Um, but we've seen how that has really failed dramatically in the context of platform-owned content moderation policies. For example, the Guardian article about Facebook's internal moderation guide said that white men are protected, but black children are not because the content moderators had applied a formal equality approach that just looked at, oh, okay, race is a characteristic, gender is a characteristic, but they didn't look at which race and which gender because only some of those have been historically oppressed for thousands of years. And some of those were the ones doing the oppressing. And so that, power differential and that historical distinction and present day distinction has to be taken into account of these decisions. Otherwise, you get to what we talked about earlier with the additional backfiring um, oppression and silencing of historically marginalized speech. And so I would have really liked to see actually even substantive equality explicitly stated as something that has to be um, enforced when it comes to implementing
0: these proposals, and that's something that really drove a lot of the leak recommendations as well. Okay, so a lot of really, it's a, a lot of really interesting recommendations, certainly that touch on sort of the the, the wide range of both implementation, but then also sub- substance. Uh, why don't? What, and, it, and it's a report that will be linked uh, on the website for people to take a look. Why don't we wrap with this with a question that I get asked frequently, and I suspect politicians will as well. Um, which is who is doing it well? You know, you, you've identified some great work that, that you've been involved with and some other scholars have been involved with. And so it's, it's not like we have to look elsewhere, uh, but very often we do find governments looking for uh, validation in a sense for potential policy proposals based on implementation elsewhere. And, and we've seen with respect to this proposal, a number of people, Daphne Keller, the EFF, highlighting that in some ways this represents the very worst of of some of the proposals that are out there, not entire, not not everything that's in there, but certainly some of the takedown, some of the other kinds of things that are in there, um, are policies that we have seen play out elsewhere and and not uh, worked out particularly well. It, with all of your research, are are there models that we should be looking at beyond or in addition to the the kind of work that you've been engaged with that could provide the government with some comfort if they were to move in that direction? Um,
1: well, it is unfortunate. I think as like you said, a lot of the models that we've seen to date have been examples of what not to do. Um, and I think some of the more promising ones, both in my opinion and that I've seen people write positively about in some respects, are have not been implemented yet. Specifically, I'm thinking of the Visual Services Act in the European Union and how they seem to have put a lot of thought into into getting it right. I know there are still some critiques, of course, I don't think there will ever not be critiques, but it does seem like they put more thought to try and get past some of the more obvious pitfalls that we've seen past regimes and this proposal fall into. So, for example, what they do, and it's something we also recommend in the loop report, is to tailor the law to different types of platforms and to recognize that the vary so widely in in nature business model purpose intent and that there has to be a, that part of the law that addresses that so you don't end up um, you don't end up driving smaller or nonprofit platforms out of the market for example um, at the same time don't end up being overly lenient on the dominant platforms that should be more strictly regulated and so I do know the proposed law, here by Heritage, there is a section, I think, when it comes to enforcement, where they say, well, look at these factors such as their ability to pay and things like that. But it doesn't seem to go far enough. It seems to be almost an afterthought, rather than something built into the the regulatory approach itself. And so the way that the DSA splits up between different types of providers and even between online platforms and very large online platforms is something that's worth looking to. Um, another thing that they do that I think is is kind of an exciting um, future direction that more people in the space could look into is, is the idea of systemic harms. And that's something that I touched on in the LEAF report, but actually went more into in my Wee Robot paper, which is the idea that even if you shouldn't either legally or otherwise go after platforms for speech in the case of individuals, You can't ignore the fact that there is a lot of expression that occurs that amounts to what many would consider legal harm from the perspective of the person who's receiving the brunt of all that harm. So, for example, if you imagine a coordinated harassment attack on Reddit or Facebook or Twitter, if, if every single person of, say, a thousand person mob sends a single violent tweet or single violent post to one person that each of them has only sent one post or one tweet so that's not something like it wouldn't be reasonable to go after someone legally for that or even to go after the platform necessarily for each of those thousand people but from the person on the other end of it they've just received a thousand tweets or a thousand violent messages wishing them death or rape or any number of of Types of violence. And that does seem something like something that should be legally actionable. So, something that the DSA and actually I think the UK Online Harms Bill also starts talking about that I haven't seen laws in the US or Canada address yet is the idea of systemic harm. And what does the platform actually contribute to on a systemic level? due to its own choices and how it's designed its platform and how it's running its business model. Because then that seems to get you around the intermediary aspect in some ways, because you're not looking at what's the platform's role in every individual case, you're looking at the cumulative role of the platform's role and its own choices on a systemic level.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I mean, thank you for, for identifying both some of the other approaches, as well as a really... I think important kind of use case about how challenging some of these policies can be it's it this feels like an issue that uh, is going to well, obviously we're going to continue to see it debated in Canada for some time and one hopes that you know as the government moves from consultation to actual policies and proposed legislation if in fact the government returns as the government uh, that it begins to to do a better job both of accounting for what we've seen take place elsewhere the the differences between different kinds of harms the risks that some of their proposals raise as well as of course some of the really important and valuable research that's been conducted by a number of people across the country including yourself Uh, Cynthia thank you so much uh, for sharing some of that research and insight on the podcast
1: thank you so much it was a pleasure
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo lebron Leboy.